0: What would you be prepared to do, willing to do, if someone was to give you $10 million? So if someone gave you $10 million and said, I'll give you this if you do Y, to what lengths would you be prepared to go to receive that $10 million? This is a real survey that was conducted in the United States quite recently. What would you be prepared to do? Just talk with the person next to you, swap ideas. What are you willing, how low are you willing to go for the sake of $10 million? All right, give it a shot. Talk to each other. Okay, how low are you prepared to go? As I said, a real survey, they asked particular questions of people to see if they were prepared to uh, do certain immoral things for the sake of the money. Here's what happened. of those who were interviewed said they'd be willing, for the sake of $10 million, to abandon their family. 10% said they would be prepared to give false testimony in a murder trial so that a murderer would go free. 7% said they'd be prepared to kill a complete stranger. Don't go to America, let me tell you. Don't go to America. Three per cent said they'd be prepared to put their children up for adoption. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And yet when you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and please do have it open in front of you, Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, page 669 of those Bibles that you have, you come to Ecclesiastes and what he does is he observes life under the sun. You know that phrase that keeps coming up, under the sun, And as he observes it, he sees sadness, uh, envy, loneliness and oppression. And he says that is the characteristic of life in this world. People destroy their relationships with other human beings for the sake of money or career. All sorts of things interfere with life. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says... uh, Life is just riddled with meaningless pursuits. Uh, It's fragile. It's It's just a breath of wind. But are people that hopeless? Are people really that hopeless? Remember, how many of you remember John Lennon's song, 1971, Imagine? How many? Just put up your hand if you remember it. All the people my age will, maybe even some of the younger ones will. I'm sorry, I'm not saying you're as old as me, but you know. This is what the John Lennon. I'd like to sing it for you, but I, I'm going to spare you. I'm ha- have mercy on you. In this song, he says, "Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion too." Imagine all the people living in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join us and the world Will live as one. Can you imagine it? Get rid of religion, politics, national boundaries. Get rid of possessions, and then we'd all just get along in peace and harmony together. You can't imagine it, can you? And that's the point that the writer comes to here in Ecclesiastes three and four. It's it's hard to imagine that happening. Because we live in such a dog-eat-dog world. A world that lives in the shadow of Genesis chapter 3. A world that is fractured. A world where people are inhumane towards each other. A world where everyone is infected and the whole of the world is infected by that disease of sin. Verse 16 of chapter 3. In the place of justice there's wickedness. Look at it with me, 3.16. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. Now notice he's not just saying evil is present in the world. He's saying evil exists where there should be justice. Not just evil, but evil replaces justice. I'm sure it doesn't happen here, uh, but in Australia sometimes police have been known to take bribes. Yeah. <laughs> of course it doesn't happen here, but it's not right, is it? You see, police are meant to uphold the law, aren't they? Not trash the law in the place of justice, wickedness. But also in the place of righteousness there is evil. I read a newspaper article in Australia a few months ago. A woman was being charged with soliciting a minor for the sake of prostitution. Being charged because she'd enlisted a 12 year old uh, female uh, for sex with other men, older men. Now that is horrible, that is evil. But the twist in the story was that this woman was the mother of that 12-year-old girl. Isn't that evil? See, in the place of righteousness there is evil. Aren't mothers meant to protect their daughters? People behave like animals. Verses 18 to 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are beasts. Now you get the news from different countries like Syria or the Sudan and you just hear story after story of inhumanity, almost animal-like behaviour, although it's insulting to animals sometimes to see the way humans treat each other, our capacity to maliciously, destroy one another is horrible, and especially in the scene of war. But you know, he says it's even worse than our behaviour being like animals. Uh, And you see that, don't you? Uh, Where in the animal world is there racial hatred? We're almost lower than the beasts. But the writer makes a further point. He says that animals and people in the end, they all just face the same destiny. Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. All is vanity. All are from one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. The end is the same. Uh, Your dog dies and you bury your dog. A person dies and you bury the person. You dig them both up in a month's time and their corpses are both rotting. So the writer says, what, what benefit is there being a human being over an animal? Well, in the end, none at all. You feeling cheered up by this book yet? Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's harsh, isn't it? It's a harsh book. No one looks out for the oppressed, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. Uh, those who have power and money, they use it for themselves. Uh, They don't use it for those who need it. When the Bali bombings occurred about a decade ago, uh, it had a powerful impact on those in Australia because many Australians holiday in Bali. The day after uh, well over 100 Australians were killed in that bombing, there were businessmen in Australia who got on a plane and flew to Bali so they could purchase property at rock-bottom prices. isn't it? That's humanity under the sun. What do we make of this um, callous indifference of human beings towards each other? Well, chapter 3 and verse 17. I said in my heart God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and every work. We'll Will God bring justice? See, I said in my heart, God will do it. You can hear almost the longing in the writer, but he doesn't know when. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. In fact, he says, it seems to me like the dead are better off than the living. That's the point he makes in chapter 4. And he even goes further. It seems like those who've not yet been born are better off than those who are living. Chapter 4 verse 3, Better is he who has not yet been because they don't have to witness uh, the horrible nature of sin ripping people apart in our world. And then from verse 3, there seems to be a change of direction. He starts to focus his attention on work although it's work in the context of relationships. This whole section is about inhumanity and injustice and the way it destroys relationships. And he continues to think about the way relationships are damaged or built and he does that by looking at work. Already in this uh, book there have been hints of a a slightly positive glimmer of hope when it comes to work. If you go back to chapter 2 verse 24, you read there, nothing is better than to find enjoyment in his toil. Nothing better for a man than to find enjoyment in his toil. That we're told is from the hand of God. Or in chapter 3 verse 22, there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. You've got to work, it's just a reality of life, so make the most of it. Make the most of it, that's his point. But notice, work is described as toil. It's going to be a struggle, this side of Genesis chapter 3. Not straightforward. There are problems bound out, frustrations. and There are always weeds in the garden, this side of Genesis 3. That's the story. And when you're trying to find your meaning in your work, if you're looking for the meaning and purpose of life, and, and this book's about that, when you look for meaning in work, You'll always be disappointed. The best thing you can do is try and enjoy your work now because you'll never get your meaning from it. See? It has limited purpose. And he explores that. He says, because when you come to look at work, uh, you see that it is frustrating. It doesn't provide purpose. People are motivated to work by their envy. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. I saw all the toil and skill in work that they come from a man's envy of his neighbour. Now, remember in in, um, Ecclesiastes, he's making generalisations. He's just making a general point. He's not saying it's the case everywhere, but he's saying here is a generalisation that is generally true. Work, people work because of their envy of one another. Jealousy. Uh, We learn what it means to be jealous from the very youngest of our days. I remember I've got three children and uh, when the, uh, the second child was uh, just um, being breastfed, I remember Sue sitting down on the lounge with a pillow. Uh, Kate was on the pillow, her head resting on the pillow and she was breastfeeding her in the lounge room of our house. And Ben, who was two years old, two years old at this point, came, in fact he was slightly less than two years old, came into the room saw that Sue was feeding Kate and came up, grabbed the pillow and ripped it out and ran into the other room. (laughs) We didn't have to teach him to be jealous. He seemed to be able to do it all by himself. Uh, Jealousy. And what he's saying is that as adults we're more sophisticated and work. Often we work for the sake of envy and we try and outdo each other in terms of our careers and our jobs. I've now turned 50 and as a, uh, a man in his uh, 50s I get to go to a lot of, lots of 50th birthday parties. Right? That's the, the privilege I now have. What I've noticed is that when men go to 50th birthday parties they play a game, they play a game. And the game is called Who's Had the Most Successful Life? Who's Had the Most Successful Life? And this is where the way the game is played. You go to the party and then some men who'd known each other for a lot of years get into circles together and they start to play who's had the most successful life, who's achieved the most with their life. I was at a 50th birthday party recently with friends I used to do gymnastics with, so in my teenage years. And we'd catch up every decade or so for the 30th, 40th and 50th birthday parties. You know, we do the rounds. And I got into a conversation at this party with Mark, with Dave and with Ken. And we had a round of, who's had the most successful life? Huh? Mark kicked off. Mark is a property developer in Adelaide. He lives in a multi-million dollar penthouse apartment. He was there at this party looking very tanned and fit and healthy, wealthy. He'd driven in a very nice sports car to this party. He had a beautiful blonde girlfriend who was 20 years younger than him on his arm. This was a series of girlfriends that he'd had. Mark is doing very well with his life. Thank you very much. Let's move on to Dave. Uh, Dave is a man gymnastics with. His aspiration as a 20-year-old was to retire by the time he was 40, to make enough money to retire at 40. He retired at 39 to live off his investments. He figured he couldn't get married because he couldn't afford a wife if he was going to retire at 40. So he's then, again, had a series of, of lovers, but he's, he's got a lot of money. He's done very well for himself. And this is what he said. You know, how's life going, Dave? He said, it's just one big party, 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 you know, it's yeah. like that. And then it, we went to Ken. Ken has a um, multinational business that he runs, extraordinarily wealthy, and he explained that he'd just been to Paris on holidays. In fact, he'd gone to Paris to run a marathon uh, that he ran in less than three hours. Fit, healthy, and while he was there he proposed to his fiancée under the Eiffel Tower. Life was going very well for Ken. And then everyone turned to me. In fact, Ken, when he turned to me, he patted me on the stomach. Remember, we used to do gymnastics here. He patted me on the stomach like this. He said, so, Paul, what are you doing to keep fit? The man who just run the marathon. And then he followed it up and he said, are you still at that same church? I figured I was losing the game at this point. (laughs) And so I I thought, yeah, I've got to play the game. So I said, well actually I'm a very successful church pastor. Um, My church is really quite large. We're doing some novel things. And and I played the game. I shouldn't have, but I did. On the way home in the car, my wife Sue, and she said to me, you know Paul, when we were talking to them about, she was using we in the royal sense, what she meant was me. (laughs) When you were talking about how life was going, I think you should have talked more about Jesus. For there's no point to life for any of them except in Jesus. People work out of envy of their neighbour. That is the reality. And it's interesting, Australians, I don't know what it's like here, but Australians are addicted to work. They compete with each other uh, in terms of having the most successful job, earning the most money, and also compete for what they can get with that money. It's the nature of our culture. It's what they have the house or the car. There's a magazine that's published in Australia and it's called Better Homes and Gardens. Better Homes and Gardens. And you read this magazine. And it's meant to make you think, I could have a house like that. My garden could be like that. No one's ever published a magazine called Perfectly Adequate Homes and Gardens. (laughs) It's just not the way our world works, is it? it? It isn't. But that's the message work harder, get more and more. Go on, go on. Climb up the ladder, keep climbing, get that promotion. Get that corner office. Get that general manager slot on your door. Keep climbing up the ladder. Keep climbing up. And when you get to the top, it's just top of the ladder. It's just breath, isn't it? See, it's just, what's the point? See, once you get there, what do you have? i got a friend who says, the, the trouble with the rat race is even if you win the race, you're still a rat. (laughs) That's the message of Ecclesiastes. So maybe the solution is to drop out. It's called downshifting in Australia, downshifting. Maybe that's the clue. But the writer goes on, he says, look, lazy people are foolish though. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So, if you're not working with your hands, how are you going to eat? You're not providing for yourself. Well, you can't. You have no assets, no resources. So, what you start doing is you start eating into your resources. The picture is one of cannibalism. If you stop providing for yourself with food, you start drawing down on your fat. You just consume yourself. That's the picture here in verse 5. So, what's the best option? Verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. What he's saying is you, you've got to know how to work with one hand and how to rest with the other. Right? You're a fool if you just work with both hands all the time. Work with one, rest with the other. That's the balance. It's not that that balance gives meaning to your life. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying it is better. That's what he says, doesn't he? Verse 6, better a handful of quietness than two handfuls of striving. It doesn't make sense of life, but make the most of it. Make the most of it. Because we know that work doesn't make sense of life. It's not meant to. It's not meant to be able to do that. In fact, we know that work leads to loneliness. Verse 7 of uh, chapter 4. He says, Again I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no one, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity. You get the picture, don't you? Uh, The idea of dedicating yourself to work at the, the sacrifice of relationships. There's a book written in Australia by Clive James called Affluenza. It talks about Australians' addictions uh, to stuff, materialism. And in this uh, book they recount an interview with a man called David who was the son of a merchant banker in Sydney. When David was a teenager his father was just a workaholic, always at work, never had enough time for his family. And his wife persuaded him to take a day off and spend that day sailing on Sydney Harbour with his son David. And so off they went and sailed around Sydney Harbour for the day. And in this interview David says that was the best day with his father in his whole life that he could remember. A whole day off to spend just with him. And then his father died at a fairly young age when David was in his mid-twenties. And David was going through his possessions afterwards and came across his diaries. And he looked up the day when he'd gone sailing with his father. That special day that just stood out in his mind. And his father had written in the diary complete waste of a day. Chapter 4 verse 8 For whom Am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? For whom? Relationships are, are better, just like work is better than the alternative You know, and balance of life, enjoy your work. Relationships are better. Uh, there's no question that life is better when you've got that, that relational network around you. Verse 9, two are better than one because you get a good return for your toil. Or well, verse 10, if one falls down, if there's two of you, the other person can pick you up. That's good news. Right? Verse 11, if two lie down together, the, the picture is in um, if you're travelling in the, in the wilderness in ancient times, nowhere to, nowhere to lodge. Two lying down together, you keep the body warmth, keeps you going. Two are better than one. Or well, verse 12, uh, two can defend against one. If you're going to go into a fight, take a friend with you. <laughs> much better, better yet a three three uh, uh, cord threefold cords not quickly destroyed, so take two people with you, three on one, much better odds uh-huh. there 's benefits to relationships. Then he goes on and talks about this poor and wise youth and the old and the foolish king. Uh, the old king doesn 't take advice from people anymore, gets himself isolated, makes dumb mistakes the poor and wise youth who's in prison, I take that he's in prison because of his debts, See, is then promoted to the throne and in his wisdom he takes good advice from those around him and we learn in verse 16 that there is no end of all the people that he led. What we're being told here is that it's better to have relationships like it's better to enjoy your work. But relationships still don't provide our meaning and purpose in life. They don't do that. In fact, that's why you get the conclusion in verse 16 you do. The poor youth who becomes king, well those who come later, they won't rejoice in him. I mean, even great leaders, they die and no one can remember them. See, who was the great Prime Minister of Malaysia back in 1923? Who knows? Who cares? We've forgotten him, haven't we? That's the point. This is a vanity and a striving after wind. Whether you've got friends, whether you've got no friends, let me tell you, you're going to die. That'll be it. Do you feel... The way the writer leads us to the point of desperation he sort of just strips back everything, keeps stripping it back, keeps stripping it back so you can see the pointlessness of looking for your meaning and purpose under the sun, what you can taste and touch and feel. It's better to enjoy work, it's better to have friends. God knows the seasons but we don't. Just by observing You can't work it out. It all seems just beyond our grasp. You can't can't reach meaning, not as you observe. And so what this book leads us to long for is for God to break in and to reveal his purpose to us, to disclose himself with meaning and understanding so we'll know where we fit in his plans. You see, this this book, like all the Old Testament, drives us to the cross of Jesus so that we will understand how God has given us purpose and meaning. What I'd like to do for just a few moments as I wrap up, I think I've still got half an hour left. Uh, No, not true. Just a few minutes as we wrap up, what I'd like to do is to apply uh, some of these things, to think about how the, the New Testament helps us to understand our meaning and our purpose. Let's take the issue of work. Does our work have any meaning? Does it have any meaning as believers? Well, no, and yes. No, and yes. Let me do the no first. Uh, no. We live in a perishing world, it's marked by death, and work will inevitably be frustrating. Uh, like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, we're meant to make the most of it, but in the end our work will come to nothing. I used to be a lawyer. I worked for several years as a lawyer. One of the things I did as a lawyer was I prepared people's wills so that when they died there'd be a clear indication of how their assets were to be spread around. I want you to imagine I die and I come and I front before God's throne on the day of judgement. Let me tell you one thing God will not say to me on that day. Paul, you are very good at drafting wills. God will not say that to me. You see, there was a usefulness in this world to the drafting of wills. But in eternity, and in terms of who I am for eternity, that work is meaningless. It is totally meaningless. My Lord agreed. I did like most uh, people do, I got it framed and I put it on the wall of my study, and that's what you do with degrees. Unfortunately, um, in my study, a leak sprang in the roof, just above where my degree was. And I didn't know it had happened. And over a period of weeks, drops of moisture just dripped down onto my degree, kept dripping onto the degree and ran into the the, uh, parchment and ran the dyes in the parchment, and eventually, the degree got so heavy with all the water in it, it pulled the pin off the wall and fell off onto the ground and smashed the glass. That smashed. <laughs> I didn't get it repaired uh, because that degree reminds me of the meaninglessness of work. I've still got it. Water was run through the dye, smash glass. That's work in this world. It has no eternal purpose. No, our work doesn't have any eternal meaning. But yes, there is work that does. I wonder if I can get you to go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. It may even come up on the screen. I can't quite remember if I gave enough information so that would happen. Ah, there it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Remember, this is a, um, a verse in the context of a long discussion about the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the guarantees that we also will be raised from the dead. So there's that, that eternal scope to what's going on. And In verse 58, the writer says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in, your, in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Can you hear the echo from Ecclesiastes? Your labour is not in vain. Does that mean as Christians all the work that we do in this world is no longer vain? No, I don't think it is saying that. Let me show you why. The key is to understand what this phrase your labour in the Lord, your work in the Lord. What's your work in the Lord that is no longer vain? Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I won't flick you around too much but if you stick with me for this one it will be very helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul here is talking about the way he surrenders his rights. That's not the main point. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Now that could easily be translated, are you not my labour in the Lord? And then he comes back in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about his labour in the Lord. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, and then look down to chapter 16, verse 10. Page 1158. Paul says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. See, our, our labour, our work for the Lord is not in vain. Paul talks about his work for the Lord, he talks about Timothy's work for the Lord. What's he saying? What work is he talking about here that's not in vain? Well, he's talking about his labour in building disciples of the Lord. That's the sort of labour that he's got in view here. People hearing the gospel and growing to maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because that labour will last for eternity. It has meaning. It has purpose. And friends, if you are a believer here today, then you are called upon to do this labour in the Lord. Uh, there's some of us who get to do a lot of it i, I don 't have to work anymore. People pay me so i don 't work. I just do labor in the Lord well, quite, you know sometimes I do that. but all of us to do this labor in the Lord, whether you teach Sunday school or uh, whether you 're a leader in a youth group or you run a bible study group you 're welcoming here on a Sunday or doing evangelism among your colleagues at work or trying to share the gospel with your family that 's the labor in the Lord that's on view here. Uh, I've been hearing Andrew talk about his visions for St Mary's. He talks about making disciples. That's labour in the Lord. And friends, that sort of work that gives meaning and purpose to your life because your labour in the Lord will last forever. Give yourself to that work. What about wealth and relationships? Let's uh, move on to that. Wealth and relationships. Friends, we we don't get our meaning from money. Uh, We know it's the wrong way around. We do know that, don't we? In um, Genesis 1 and 2, what's the order of things? God makes us and the world for relationship with each other and to rule over the world, including money or resources. God makes us relationships rule over money. That's the right order for things. But in our Genesis 3 world, what happens is we long for the world You see, the world then controls us and destroys our relationships and our relationship with God. We get it all back to front, don't we? Uh, That's the problem of sin that we labour with in the Lord. Sin destroys everything. But in Christ we use our wealth to build relationships and not destroy them. Come with me to Philippians chapter 4. Again, I think this will be on the screen in front of you. Philippians chapter 4 passage that was read out a few minutes ago. And In this passage, Paul talks to the Philippians and he says, look, verses 11 to 14, I'm glad that you've revived your concern for me. You know, you've revived your concern. You're continuing to send money to me. And then in verse 11, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, rich or poor. He's learned the secret of contentment. What's the secret? What's his relationship with Christ. That's the secret. That's where he gets contentment and purpose and meaning from. In Christ. He rests in God. That's why he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then in verses 15 to 18, he now starts to talk about his partnership with the Philippians. And the partnership they have is through sharing wealth. What the Philippians have done is not hang on to their wealth but actually use their wealth for their labour in the Lord. They send money to Paul so he can share the gospel with others. This is the purpose for our money, to build relationships and to labour for the sake of the gospel and to actually be generous for those who are poor and need to be cared for. That's what the true meaning of wealth is for us in this world. There's a man in my congregation called David. Uh, he came to see me a few years ago and he said, look, I'm not very good with people. I'm a bit clumsy with people. Uh, I try to evangelise them and they seem to run the other way. I lead Bible studies, people fall asleep. Uh, I don't think I have word gifts for ministry. I agree with David. Uh, I don't think he has word gifts for ministry. But then he said to me, but you know what I do really well? He said, I'm really good at making money. I'm very good at making, I have lots of money. And what I'd like to do is to make lots of money and use it for the sake of the gospel. That's the sort of partnership idea that's coming out here. How do we use our money to see people brought into relationship with the Lord? See, that's meaningful use of money, isn't it? That is purpose. And then finally, we started off looking at John Lennon's song, Imagine... Uh, Can you imagine justice in this world? People living in harmony, peace, no possessions, no oppression. Can you imagine that under the sun? It's ironic, isn't it? Uh, John Lennon was uh, killed by a bullet from Mark Chapman. That's his answer. It's not going to happen. In Romans chapter 8, We're told that the whole creation has been subjected to futility. It's a good world, but we know it should be better. So, so much better. But it's hard to grasp how it will be. Do you feel that? Do you feel the the weight of living in this world and you can't see how it will get better? Do you hear yourself, your heart resonating with the writer of Ecclesiastes when he says in chapter 3 verse 17, verse 17, I said in my heart, God, you almost hear it in brackets, surely God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there must be a time, there must be a time for every matter and every work. He knows in his heart that God must exercise his judgement. He just can't see how it's going to take place. But we know it will in the Lord Jesus. Let me take you finally now to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-13, to 13. again on the screen so you can read it. There is a day coming. There is a day coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus has been raised from the dead and we have been told clearly by the word of God that Jesus will return. There is a day coming where there will be righteousness and justice established when he returns to this world, where there is a new heaven and a new earth. It has been revealed to us that we live in the age before that return. We have meaning and we have purpose as we proclaim the gospel and we look with certainty, not with just a longing, but with certainty to the hope of that day when God will surely establish his righteous judgment. Come Lord Jesus, come. Come Jesus, come. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of yours. It's a profound word. It it strips away our pretensions of trying to make sense of life in this world. It lays us bare, exposes our motivations, our thoughts, Uh, Father, thank you that you speak with that decisive surgeon's knife that cuts us to the quick. And Father, we thank you that now we are in relationship with the Lord Jesus. We have purpose and meaning that will last for eternity and it's found in Christ. Father, help us to labour as those who have clarity of purpose allowing our relationship with you to be central and to dominate our existence. Father, we ask that in your mercy we'll not be deluded or seduced by the world around us which can't provide meaning, but we'll know that in you we have forgiveness and hope, adoption, life, Father, help us to live with security and purpose because we're your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.